This episode of the Consulting Pipeline Podcast is brought to you by Kai Davis. Kai does a number of things, and I'm not sure in this totally improvised sponsor read exactly what to point out about what Kai does. So let me try to give you a sense of why you might be interested in finding out more about Kai's services. Kai, this may actually come out in my interview with Kai today. Kai some time ago was basically doing generalist SEO services, and he became dissatisfied with the kind of results that he was getting from that standard sort of generalist uh, approach to trying to help his clients get better SEO ranking. And so he looked into doing things, I guess you would say the hard way, by building actual relationships with people who were involved in um, other sites, authoritative sites, who could link back to your site and creating some kind of win-win relationship with those people. As a result of doing this, Kai learned a ton about what we might call outreach marketing. It's not really the same as outbound sales or outbound marketing. It's more using digital outreach as a tool to create beneficial relationships. And what Kai found was that that tool can be applied to a, a, a number of uh, purposes. It can be applied to market research. It can be applied to sales. It can be applied to marketing. And those are just a few of the applications for that tool of doing outreach in an effective manner. And so what Kai has done is taken that knowledge and that insight about how to do good outreach, not crappy outreach that people just want to ignore and delete as quickly as possible and try to find the mark as spam button, but actually good outreach. And to me, that's sort of Kai's superpower is helping people like me, like I've benefited tremendously from Kai's insight and knowledge and his research in this area, helping people like me, like us, you know, the, the small, the small guys <laughs> use digital outreach to accomplish some beneficial purpose in our business. And that's why I think it might be worth your while to head over to kaidavis.com. As I say that, I am having this momentary early senior moment of wondering if that's the right address. It is the right address. KaiDavis.com. Let me spell that for you. K-A-I-D-A-V-I-S.com. And checking out Kai's products and services, I think it will be worth your while if the idea of using digital outreach as a tool to make your business better is of interest to you. It has been a while since I've recorded this interview with Kai, but I wanted to ask him some of the sort of nagging questions I've had for a long time about SEO. And in particular, it has to do with what is the impact of making a change in your messaging on your website? And that change would be driven, in the case of our listeners here with this show, it would be driven by a change in your market position or an aspired, you're aspiring to change your market position. And so you're changing your web presence and your web messaging in order to support that change in your market position. 
then that leads to the next question. Is that if I have, you know, beneficial search ranking for my website as it is, if I go in and change my website in a dramatic way, is that going to mess up my search engine rank? And is that therefore going to cause me to lose out on leads for my services? That was really the core question that led me to do this interview with Kai. I very much hope you enjoy the interview. Kai Davis, how are you? I am excellent. How are you, my friend? Doing good. Um, sitting on the sofa here at home with the window open behind me, a little breeze coming in. It's a, it's a very nice, very moderate 94 degrees in Oregon. I believe it's day 45 of our heat wave. Uh, yes, it is hot here. Oh, my heart goes out to you. Um, normally, we should be getting heat like that, but uh, it's been pretty nice here. I appreciate the heart going out. If the AC unit goes out to me, that would also be appreciated. Oh, good. Yeah, PM your address. <laughs> All right. So we've got a question here from Mr. J who wrote in, I'm going to read his question. And the reason you're here, Kai, is because you are absolutely the best person perhaps on the planet to answer this question. Okay. So uh, Mr. J says, just a quick question uh, for the past 18 months or so, my business partner and I have had some great success increasing organic traffic and sales for e-commerce sites. The first few clients came to us through my podcast at Content Champion, which covers SEO and content marketing, but we soon realized that almost by chance, all the clients and major successes we were having were focused on owner-run e-commerce stores. We've developed a really good system to do this kind of work with a small team, and monthly retainers start at 3,000 pounds. So now I'm considering changing my whole brand in the context of reading your positioning book because my existing brand seems almost incongruous if we are to grow this line of work. To that end, I have purchased the domain eStoreSEO.com, which has a tagline e-commerce SEO for online store owners. So the whole proposition is very laser focused. However, I have been running my other business, Content Champion, for three years on a general content marketing type focus, and I have just recorded my 70th podcast. So to boil this all down, is it a good idea to just focus on the e-commerce brand in your opinion? And the question number two, how can I not lose all the history and content of my existing content champion brand so I can at least leverage some of its currency? And the reason I wanted to, uh, and I asked, uh, it, actually it's uh, Laz, Laz James, hey Laz if you're listening, uh, asked if it would be okay to answer this question on air uh, through the expertise of Kai because it is not an uncommon question when you are thinking about changing how you specialize or how you brand yourself or how you position yourself, any of those changes. There are some people who they are getting leads through their website. You're in the minority, by the way, for uh, self-employed people. Uh, most self-employed people, this, I know this sounds mean, but they have uh, pretty useless websites. And it's not meant to be mean. It's just a factual statement. When I ask people, so how many leads do you get from your website? They're like, oh, one a year or <laughs> one a month. Or They're not like these lead generating machines, but sometimes they are. And sometimes it is not, it's because the site has longevity or you've done a really good job with content marketing or something. And it's a real potential problem that if you change things, those leads stop coming in through the website. So, Kai, I want to hand it over to you here. 
What are your thoughts on that question? I, I think it's an excellent question. And by asking it at this point, uh, Laws is asking it at the right time. I've worked in the past on SEO migrations for uh, small single person companies and SEO migrations for eight and nine figure brands. And unfortunately, I'm often brought in after they've made the transition and they're like, we aren't getting any leads anymore, any sales. What should we do? And I'm like, you need a time machine. <laughs> go back and ask this question where we're asking it right now. So first step, we're asking it at the right point. So uh, okay, can I stop you right there? Can you please? define what an SEO migration is? That term is uh, maybe not familiar to everybody. Absolutely. So an SEO migration or a search engine optimization migration would be when we're doing a website migration. So as in this case, going from domain number A or domain A to domain B, mm-hmm. and we're saying, well, we're getting traffic, we're getting leads, we are ranking for keywords related to some current topic or some brand on the original site. When we migrate, we would like to have that traffic come with us. What do we need to do to ensure that it will? And so this is where we get into the search engine optimization details of a migration. A website migration itself could be pretty easy. We fired up a new site, we added some content, we're done. But if you're saying, well, we were ranking before on the old site and we were getting traffic on the old site, we want to get that on the new site, that's where we start getting into some of the technical aspects of search engine optimization and how to do a migration the correct way. Got it. Okay. Charge ahead. Now sure. Now find that. So, so... The first thing I'd call out here, and this is a little outside of search engine optimization and more in the line of building a strong, durable business. Mm-hmm. I think it's wonderful that you have the podcast, that you have the, uh, I think it's the Content Champion podcast, if mm-hmm. my notes are correct, yeah. and keep that going. Uh, rename it, reposition it, use this as a relaunch event to get more reviews and ratings from your listeners, but you have an audience built up on that podcast and transitioning from content to e-commerce SEO, it is a bit of a straddle or a long jump there from one to the other, but you could definitely bridge it saying like, well, most of the best practices for search engine optimization these days, especially for an e-commerce store, center around creating great content people want to read, share, that people will find when they're researching. So you could see the podcast evolving from content focus to e-commerce content focus, and from e-commerce content to e-commerce SEO is a very, very small jump. So definitely keep the existing podcast around reposition it. You'll lose some listeners. You'll gain some new listeners. But the podcast here is almost as valuable as an email list would be in making this transition within your business. So a couple real specific questions there, Kai. So is it, um, it, the way I understand it, if you have an existing podcast, it's a little bit like you could change on your Twitter account, you could change your Twitter handle and you're not going to lose your followers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same with the podcast. Could you change the name of the podcast? Great question. Yes. Uh, as far as I understand, and I've done this once before, but it's a little hazy in my mind. Mm-hmm. You could change the name of the podcast. You could sort of rebrand the podcast, mm-hmm. new artwork for uh, uh, the podcast, new description. I think you could even change the categories it li- it's listed in. So just like you might take a Twitter account and change the name there, but keep the followers, you could take your podcast, change the branding, that public presentation of it, the name you're using for it, keep all the existing episodes around, keep all the existing subscribers to that podcast, and have a semi-seamless transition there from, hey, we're content champion to, hey, now we're the e-commerce content podcast or the e-commerce content and SEO podcast. Keep your listeners engaged and move them forward while feeding them new information related to your new laser-focused positioning. Great. Okay. So moving on from that, we have the podcast, 
then we have the content that's on the content champion domain. And this is where the traffic is. This is where the leads are. This is where things are coming from. I did a little search engine optimization research before the call using one of my favorite tools, uh, Majestic SEO, mm-hmm. available at majestic.com. It's a backlink analyzer that tells you all the links, all the unique domains linking to a site. I love this tool for both competitive research and search engine optimization migrations because it lets me understand the most popular pages on the site, where people have linked to the most. And this becomes important because when we think about making this transition, if we were to say just brute force redirect everything to the homepage on the new site, well, people who were following a link to an old page that has a lot of links pointing to it, they now have a weird disjointed experience where they're on the homepage of a new site with different branding. So one important step when we think about the search engine optimization migration is identifying both all the pages that have the most incoming links to them, unique sites linking to them, and all the sites that generate the most traffic for you through organic channels or just as landing pages in general. Mm -hmm. And you can find that statistic in Google Analytics under the landing pages report. So these essentially form one list, your most popular pages, the pages that people link to the most or visit the most. Mm -hmm. This is the content that most likely is generating the most leads for you. Unless Mm -hmm. you have robust tracking set up and you're able to say, okay, they started at page A, they submitted the contact form four pages later, and we could see that entire prospect journey. Mm-hmm. The best guess we have about where to optimize or where to migrate across content is from these two sources, what pages are generating the most traffic and what pages have the most links pointing to them. Mm-hmm. Once we've identified those, that's the content I think that first and foremost, we would want to move across to the new domain. So I'd recommend wholesale copy and paste, move that content across, keep the URL slug the same, and then 301 redirect it. And a 301 redirect is a type of redirect. So basically, person goes to example.com forward slash A, we have a redirect in place, they end up on example.com forward slash B. What's important? Oh, please, if you have a question. uh, So would this be, in this case, would the 301 redirect be from old domain slash something to new domain slash same page name? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. okay. We'd want to preserve the UR, what I call the UR, or what's known as the URL slug, that trailing part of the domain name or the URL, just so to Google as they're indexing this content, they're able to say, okay, so the old page was like, uh, let me look my notes here, triple Twitter traffic technique. The new page, triple Twitter traffic technique. And Mm -hmm. so to Google, they're like, oh, it's the same content. It's just been moved to a new site. Great. We'll re-index it and some of the page rankings will carry across. So we move the content across. Uh, We can at this point, but generally I recommend waiting a month or so after migration to do an optimization of the content. So we created this content champion content with a different target market and different target audience in mind. Some of the content won't apply to e-commerce. Some will apply to e-commerce. So there's a qualitative judgment aspect that needs to be passed through for each piece of content you move across. How relevant is it to my new target market? Mm. If it is relevant, then we could do what I'd I'd really recommend as a light edit, 30 minutes maybe per article if it's a longer article. Mm. Read through, figure out the pieces that don't apply to e-commerce, delete them. If you can edit them easily to make them more appeal to e-commerce, make those edits. But we essentially want to reposition this content to match up with your new audience. Since Mm -hmm. as uh, Laz asked for, well, how am I supposed to leverage this existing content and these existing resources I have? One of the best ways is figuring out the content you already have that would appeal to your new target market moving that content across, and then doing a round of content optimization to make sure it's properly positioned, the messaging is correct, the language is correct to talk to, in this case, e-commerce store owners 
as compared to people who are interested in content marketing topics. Now, I know you said something there that I know is for a lot of people is just going to be so painful. You said delete the stuff that can't fit the new positioning or the new audience. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is painful and it is hard. And I am somebody, I think I, I, on an early episode of this podcast, we talked about how I've changed positioning five or six times for <laughs> yeah. my business. And so I'm also a prolific content creator. And so whenever I've made a change like this, there's been that moment of, well, a third of the content I wrote doesn't apply anymore. Shit, this feels terrible. Yeah. I try to balance that against the fact that, well, if a third doesn't apply, two thirds does apply. So the work you've done that has been generating leads and has been generating traffic, a good portion of that will still work for the new audience. And it does feel hard to delete portions of the content. You could absolutely rewrite it in that case instead. But for a migration like this, early on, I think optimizing for efficiency and time is most important. We don't want to get bogged down doing a rewrite of one ultimate 15,000 word article. It'd be much more efficient to move the 10 most relevant articles across, do a quick scan of them, make sure we're redirecting appropriately, and then make sure that the messaging of those articles, the content fits better or for worse, the new audience that we're targeting. Yeah, I can see that. So let's go with that idea that you might have to delete 30% Mm -hmm. of your content. What is going to (laughs) happen to Laz's website after this migration? And then one month later, he just deletes 30% of the content. Is he going to, I know you can't say for sure because we're talking about a very complex system, Mm -hmm. but what would you prepare him for in terms of effects from that? In the short term, you are going to see a drop in organic traffic because your existing domain for content champion has around 300 referring domains pointing to it. And eStore SEO has, I believe, uh, three referring domains pointing to it. So Mm. referring domains, these are the links we talk about when we talk about link building. It's really what helps people get to your website. It's a signal to Google, this is authoritative, relevant content, or this is not relevant content. So in the short to medium term, let's say the three to six month window, expect a drop in traffic, expect a drop in leads, expect a drop in rankings. Mm -hmm. This will correct over time, but it's the most noticeable effect you'll see. Whenever a site does a content migration like this, unless they've spent three to six months ahead of time putting in place a lot of the necessary systems and working with one or many SEO consultants, you see a drop like this when you migrate. When I've done migrations like this, my traffic basically follows the same pattern. It will drop by 25 to 50%. Mm. It will slowly incrementally grow, and then it will stabilize and continue growing from there. But there Mm. is always this drop when we do a migration like this. One thing we could potentially do to mitigate that drop is only move select pieces of content across. So we want to optimize for the pieces that are getting the most traffic or have the most links move those across, but keep the rest of the content champion brand up. Keep those pages up. Allow people to find them, link to them, uh, continue following links to them, continue contacting you through that site if they want. Almost a slow fade between one positioning and the other with the majority of your focus on e-store SEO. But prepare yourself for that drop in traffic because it is a very much a reality and it very much is what to expect when you do this sort of migration. The advice in here, migrating your most popular content across, making sure you're 301 redirecting the old pages to the new pages, and then down the line, either moving across the rest of your content or saying, well, the rest of the content doesn't really apply. I'm just going to set it aside and redirect individual pages to the most appropriate page on the new site. Mm -hmm. That will help capture the remainder of 
of people. Uh, I worked on an SEO migration recovery for a store that it was a store that migrated from, I think, uh, uh, WooCommerce to Shopify, mm-hmm. and they hadn't put any thought into their existing product pages. And product right. pages get a lot of links pointing to them. So what they encountered was a completely new URL format in their Shopify store, 90% of their links pointing to product pages that no longer existed and were returning a 404 error. And so mm. their traffic flatlined completely, going from oh. probably 1,000 visitors a day to under 100 a day. Ooh. I came in and said, hey, I found a problem. Fix this thing. And it was a list of 50, 60 pages. We redirected them. We were able to capture a majority of those links that were pointing to the old pages. Mm. I advise they start reaching out to people who were linking to those old pages and say, hey, we've updated our site. The best content's over here at the new URL. Could you link over here instead? That's Mm. a wonderful tactic to get people linking to the new content instead. And so you get the full value of those links pointing to the content. But it will be a period of adjustment. Traffic will drop. Uh, uh, keeping content live on Content Champion in the meantime will mitigate some of that. But as you move your most popular articles across or your articles that have the most links pointing to them or the articles that receive the most traffic, you're going to see a drop just because the new domain you're moving to has fewer referring domains than your existing domain. Mm -hmm. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it seems like there might be an opportunity. I I don't know what use, I don't know how much Laws is maybe using email marketing, but if people are becoming leads by opting into an email list on the old domain mm-hmm. content champion, then that could be kind of where this transition happens of like, Hey, we're doing something different now. And uh, you know, that may not apply to you, but what we're going to tell you about what we're doing. So they could, the stuff that's not relevant to the new fo- you know, positioning focus, they might still get some value out of that by acquiring a few list subscribers or something. Entirely. And I've done the same myself a number of times when I've made that migration, when I've basically hollowed out the husk of that old domain and sucked the marrow out of its bones. <laughs> it'll still have some traffic coming to it. It'll still have some content on there. I'll make sure to leave a lead magnet and a strong call to action up. People will opt in. They'll be moved into a sequence that says, hey, you signed up over here on old domain. I'm doing more writing over here on new domain on this topic. If that's not your jam, mm-hmm. click here to unsubscribe. But like that lead bang that I promised you, it's in your inbox already. You're taken care of. But if you want to come along for the ride and experience the new content for this audience in this direction, you don't have to do a thing. You're already on the list. And this brings me to one point I wanted to raise. If, if uh, Laz is not already doing email marketing, while he's preparing eStore SEO for this new push, for this new mm-hmm. business, focusing on getting a lead magnet up, opt-in forms up, aggressively capturing any traffic that's coming to your site that isn't yet ready to become a prospect or fill out an application form, Mm -hmm. but is ready potentially to join your list, get those systems in place in parallel with building out eStore SEO, just so for people that come to Content Champion, you could get them on your email list or you could reactivate them if they're already on your email list, but Mm -hmm. your email list has gone cold. I think one of the things that has made my business more durable and resilient as I've switched positioning is the fact that my email list comes with me from business to business. I don't have to hit reset on it. Some people say, oh, I opted in for the old thing. This isn't my jam, I'm opting out. But a lot of people stick around. I have people that have been 
been on my list for five years, have gone through numbers of business transitions that I've gone through, and they still love reading my content, and they buy my products, and they hire me for services, and it amazes me, and it's wonderful, but I think that really calls out the power of a list. The people who opt in might say, yeah, you're not writing about my business in particular, but I love what you're writing about, so I'm going to stick around, and they could become sources of referrals, they could become clients, they could become customers, but that email list makes your business so more durable. Yeah, that's a really great point. It's uh, kind of a flywheel that helps you transition from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. So um, let's say that someone is in that, again, maybe 20% of solo consultants or small firms actually have a website that does some real heavy lifting. They're thinking about a change in, in focus what kind of time frame would you say, okay, plan on this much time to handle the migration? Not that they would be working full-time on the migration that whole time, but you see what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. in terms of maybe business planning or maybe they need to get a little cash saved up before they do something like this to weather a little bit of a valley. What would you prepare people for in terms of time frame? Weathering a valley is good. Understanding the, the financial metrics of your business. How mm-hmm. many months of runway do you have? How many prospects are currently in your pipeline? What's your average close rate? How many mm-hmm. deals can you expect out of the lead flow you currently have? Mm-hmm. All valuable numbers to know just because it will let you know what sort of duration, what sort of time frame you could weather. Yeah. In terms of making an SEO migration like this or migrating sites like this, I think it would be valuable to even consider let's talk in the abstract and not necessarily about these two sites, but running the two sites in parallel for three to six Mm -hmm. months. So Mm -hmm. we have old site, continue chugging along, maybe don't publish any new content there, but keep it active, keep traffic coming to it, convert them into email list subscribers, start up new site on the side, aggressively create content for it, maybe migrate across some old content, Mm -hmm. maybe look at your old content and say, well, we wrote this article and I'll just draw on one of a content champions articles that I found, triple Twitter traffic technique. Okay, great. This has a lot of backlinks pointing to it. Perhaps it's generating a large amount of organic traffic or uh, incoming traffic. Why not write an e-commerce variation of that? Uh It's one, one writing technique I love when it comes to writing guest articles or writing new content is to say, I've already written an article on this topic. Can I approach it in a different direction? Or could I write the article a second time, but with a different perspective or a different approach? So we could take triple Twitter traffic technique and say, how does this apply to e-commerce stores? And write the e-commerce version of that article, get that up, and then try to get that ranking, promote that. So we aren't necessarily doing just a migration from A to B, but instead we're slowly, incrementally taking our most popular articles and topics, writing new e-commerce or whatever industry we might be targeting, focused versions of those articles, hmm. promoting them, reaching out to people who, who uh, link to the old version, asking them to link to the new version. And so we're able to build up the search engine optimization value of the new site while the old site is still running. And then once we have the site established, we have traffic coming to it, we have some amount of referring domains pointing to it, we could start moving content across, slowly shutting down the older site or shutting down portions of the older site and moving the most relevant content either in its existing form or in a new form to the new domain. That's great. So that that really does seem like a sort of roadmap for this process. And so maybe being conservative, six months, even eight, 12 months, perhaps, uh, just of like overlap where you're, you're kind of managing this transition, right? Very much so. Okay. And a big question that we didn't ask here, 
is what percentage of the existing traffic for Content Champion is organic traffic, search engine traffic. Uh-huh. It might, if it's below a threshold, I don't know what that threshold might be, let's say below 15% just to have a number to reference. If it's below this threshold, we might say, well, we're getting so much traffic from other sources, referral traffic, social traffic, email traffic, paid traffic. The organic traffic, it's not really that important. We like having the content up because the content converts people into prospects or subscribers, but it's not really driving traffic to us. So if that's the case, if your site is not getting a large amount of organic traffic or search engine traffic, you might not need to think about a migration in as detailed as a way as as I've laid out here. Instead, you could approach it as, okay, great, we have traffic channels from the podcast we guest on and the podcast we host and the paid ads we're running. Organic doesn't really matter. Let's just boom, move the content over and start running on the new site. So one preliminary question that's very important is what percentage of your traffic is organic? If it's below that threshold, you might not even need to consider the uh, roadmap I've laid out here or the warnings I put in place. That's great. In that case, uh, I guess this is a nerdy question I've always wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you just do like a global redirect on the old domain, like a a 301 redirect at the domain level, so the old domain in in Laz's case is content champion. If you just did a 301 redirect on the old domain and then the important pages, the URL slug matched on the new domain, is that really all that would be necessary if organic traffic is just not really a concern? So all those offsite links that perhaps were pointing or, I mean, if it's paid traffic, you just change the ad where the ads are pointing. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say Laws has been out there, like I, I do, like guesting on dozens of podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, those podcasts might point to philipmorganconsulting.com slash something. If I changed my domain away from philipmorganconsulting.com, as long as the slash something part is the same, would that domain level redirect be enough? You need to do a wildcard redirect versus uh-huh. just a domain level redirect. So okay. the difference is, and, and I, I'm 90% certain this is correct. If it's incorrect, please email Philip and complain to him. Good, but, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so with a wildcard redirect, it essentially captures everything after the slug. Uh-huh. And this might be an HT access level redirect where we're okay. saying, okay, capture everything after the trailing slug on the domain append that to the new domain. So we've gone from philipmorganconsulting.com forward slash positioning to newdomain.com forward slash positioning. It Mm -hmm. grabbed that positioning aspect, tagged it to the new URL, and then 301 redirected us to that new URL. So that I think is the most efficient way to do it. But I think a large part of it, especially when you're frequently guesting on podcasts or have a number of lead magnets or have a number of people linking to you, is to consider the user experience. If you say, we're on a podcast interview and you referenced an article and they link to that article in show notes and you say, eh, this isn't an article I'm keeping around or I'm just going to redirect this one article to the homepage instead, consider that user experience because if somebody is listening to that podcast interview, hears you reference an article you wrote or a resource, goes to the show notes, clicks on that link, and ends up on a new site's homepage with no messaging or no Mm. communication. Like, hey, you clicked on a thing. That thing has kind of moved. I think you did this incredibly well with sort of your retired asset page for landing pages for podcasts you'd guessed it on. You put together a beautiful page that said like, hey, the thing you're looking for, it's no longer here, but here's some useful stuff for you instead. That's a wonderful way to take that visitor, address them with the appropriate messaging, that thing, it's kind of gone, 
but then give them something of value. Here's what I'm promoting today. Here's what's available today. You could opt in here. So I think a similar strategy where it's not pointing people to the homepage, but it's either pointing them to the same version or a similar version of the same resource or article mm. or pointing them to, let's call it a bridge page, something that says, hey, we've had a couple things change under the hood. Our positioning's different. This is who we work with. You were looking for an article that's not here anymore, but here are five of our most popular articles and resources and podcast episodes. We think you should start here. Here's the best spot. That's a great way to bridge it in terms of that user experience from, I clicked on a link from the old domain to, hey, where am I? I didn't expect to end up on the site. That's great. Okay, well, you've answered all my questions. Is there something that I didn't ask or that Laws needs to know in addition to what we've talked about thus far? I have a question for you about positioning, especially not to pick on Laws' positioning, but it's a question I often come across. So Laws is picking e-commerce SEO uh, for online store owners as his laser-focused positioning uh -huh. statement. And I've often advocated for people to niche down further than just e-commerce. I view e-commerce as more of a horizontal like or a platform like SaaS or small business. And I think there's a value in saying I'm working with this particular niche in e-commerce, fashion and beauty and lifestyle, let's say, uh -huh. or I'm working with this platform in specific, Shopify stores only as we start just so we're targeting a smaller group of best buyers. And over time, we could grow and grow and grow until we're the e-commerce firm instead of the Shopify for firm. I'm very curious on your thoughts on positioning as it relates to e-commerce versus a niche. Yeah. I mean, to pick up that thread where you left it in the context of Laws' situation, and he's getting now unsolicited advice here. <laughs> Uh, but on the theoretical level, it's almost like a double horizontal positioning in that I think you could make an argument that e-commerce is a vertical. Mm -hmm. It's like a, maybe a subset of retail, right? Mm -hmm. However, there's so many kinds of businesses, you know, boring businesses that sell, you know, industrial components to other, you know, companies that buy industrial components. And that that isn't really really retail, right? Like that's more manufacturing. Yep. Where maybe a manufacturer might make their catalog available in a sort of e-commerce experiment experience. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right, Kai, that it's it's probably better thought of as a horizontal where all kinds of, you know, industries might have an e-commerce component. So that if we think of it as a horizontal, SEO is also a horizontal because you know, that's a, a discipline, that's a skill set that could be applied to many, many businesses. So in a way, it's sort of this double horizontal positioning of SEO for e-commerce. That's all theoretical stuff. I like to think about specialization and positioning in terms of what is going to happen when uh, in a couple situations crop up, when a potentially great client somehow comes across your website the message on the website is hopefully very aligned with your positioning statement. So when they come across that website, mm -hmm. are they going to go like, oh my gosh, this, these guys, where have they been on our lives? Why haven't I known about these? This is, you know, the perfect thing for what I need. Not every human is going to have that experience, but hopefully what I'm saying is when someone who could be a great client, there's this kind of, it, it all clicks like they're like, okay, we need you. So in that sense, um, I think it's quite possible that what laws is presenting as a positioning and a message could be very resonant with companies that are in fact, his ideal client. 
Oh boy, it looks like Zoom. We are so, recording. We're going to find out what happens when you go over your Zoom storage quota. <laughs> <laughs> they charge you $100 per minute. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Well, that'll be fun. Kai. <laughs> so, one We got question. unceremoniously cut off. Um, we're we back. Did. I'm ready. My router died and my modem died in the same day. It was... Did they have to be replaced? or They, they just... both needed to be replaced. Ooh, do you have them hooked into a UPS? Uh, I do not. My I'm using like an old Apple wireless router no. that I got six years ago, and the surfboard something something that everybody yeah, recommends yeah, for yeah, modem. Yeah. But like it, I had it in Portland when I lived in Portland in 2012. So I think it just was like natural yeah. life cycle of yeah. dealing with a Kai. Well, two of them failing at the same time, that was kind of suspicious. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. someone who played it fast and loose, I now. Like I have a UPS for everything. <laughs> yep. I, I own my first UPS. We bought it for Burning Man. And yep. uh, I've managed to hit the power button with my foot four times now. Hmm. I might, might want to modify that sucker with... Uh, I also use it as a footstool and it's very comfy, so... No, no, no. I just mean a little duct tape, uh, maybe Ooh. a piece of corrugated cardboard over that switch and you're... You that know, is smart. That's the sort of budget version of the nuclear switch where they flip up the cover over the toggle switch before they... Anyway, you had, a, you, had a, you had a question about specialization that I wanted to make sure we covered. Absolutely. So one of the questions I always run into when I'm working with a coaching student or when I'm just talking with people about positioning is e-commerce as a niche. And I know a number of people who gravitate towards it. And my initial reaction is always e-commerce is like, okay, it's fine. It's better than being pure generalist, but there seems to be let's call it positioning dollars left on the table where the person could take it a step further and focus on a platform. So they're Mm -hmm. specific to Shopify or they could focus on a vertical e-commerce women's fashion and beauty products. But e-commerce alone as a niche just seems a bit amorphous. I'm curious what your thoughts are and what you'd recommend to somebody who's picked e-commerce as their positioning. I tend to agree. I mean, there's a couple ways you can look at it. One is the value perspective. What I mean by that is specializing niching, niching, positioning, those are all in the world that we work in with the world of professional services. They're all tools that the reason they, I mean, the reason that they allow you to charge more is because you build up specialized expertise. I mean, that's the bedrock foundation reason why you would want to narrow down it all. Now, it also happens to make it dramatically easier to market And that's not a benefit, that's not a small benefit or one to be overlooked. But like when I, when I ask the question of how far should you narrow down, I, there's no answer to that question, but there there is an answer to the question of would it benefit you, would it allow you to deliver more value if you narrowed down more? Mm -hmm. The answer is almost always a guess at first, but after a while you start to get to feel, get a feel for your target market. And then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, if I wasn't distracted with this, if I wasn't distracted with uh, shorts that don't, uh, shops that don't run on Shopify, then I could really run the kind of business I want or mm-hmm. charge the kind of rates that I want. If that's, if, if that's a, 
you know, if, if that a statement evaluates to true, if that, if you ask yourself, if I didn't have to worry about X, I could really focus on Y and charge more or be better at what I do or figure out some stuff that's kind of been eluding me because I haven't had enough time to focus on it. If the, if any of the, those questions are true, then there is benefit to narrowing down further. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to look at it. The other way is just purely from a market size perspective. Um, and then maybe there's a sort of credibility component that might be a third way to look at it. So mm-hmm. back to your question, and let's look at it through those three lenses. Um, the first lens of would it, would you offer more value if you narrow down to either to an e-commerce platform or a, uh, a sort of sub-vertical like fashion and apparel or B2B, you know, heavy equipment or, you know, or even theoretically both Shopify and fashion apparel. Sure. So um, the answer for most people, I think, is going to be yes. There's probably mm-hmm. some low-hanging fruit for them by narrowing down beyond just e-commerce and saying that you're either focused on a platform. Please do your homework. Please pick a you know one that's not going to go away. This is the work of narrowing down is an investment that you want to have, a, I'm going to say, about ideally – 10 years or more to, to uh, get a return on that investment. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, you pick some, you know, platform, some GitHub project where someone has created their sort of dream uh, e-commerce platform, but only, you know, 50 people use it in the world and the project is abandoned after a year and a half, that's not a good investment. Mm-hmm. So please pick a, pat- if you're going to pick a platform, pick one that's going to be around um, that said, yes, from the value perspective, it probably makes sense for people to narrow down beyond just e-commerce. Mm-hmm. From the market size perspective, um, I, I reference David C. Baker's advice about that a lot. He's providing advice to medium-sized creative firms, so you can go a little smaller, but he recommends that any market you focus on have at least 2,000 and at most 10,000 companies in it. It's not always easy to get those numbers because when you get into weird, you know, non-standard definitions of market verticals, like um, here's a, here's one from from my positioning accelerator program. I've got a guy who I think has got a very good uh, shot at becoming kind of the go-to designer slash branding guy for an audience that's kind of an emerging phenomenon known as encore entrepreneurs. So people who have maybe retired from their corporate job starting something, you know, in the kind of latter half of their life. And that's a tough audience to size because Mm -hmm. there's no government database. There's no conference for these people. They're kind of an emerging audience. So that would be on the riskier side of things. But, you know, a well-established sub-vertical like fashion and apparel I mean, that's just a dream sort of match made in heaven because th- those companies are were adopting e-commerce early anyway. So mm-hmm. it's for their usage of e-commerce is not some new thing. There's plenty of precedent for companies like that using e-commerce. So I think also from the market size perspective, it's going to check out to go from e-commerce writ large to a, you know some kind of subset like users of Shopify or fashion brands on Shopify. If you can figure out the the number of companies that would be prospects, 
and you see that number is smaller than about a thousand, that might be a yellow flag. You might want to not go boldly where no man has gone before mm-hmm. with a market that small because it could not be big enough to support you over five, 10 years, in mm-hmm. which case um, you can always go bigger later. It's easier to go too small, get traction, then go bigger than it is to go the other way. Going too big almost makes it not impossible, but difficult to get that initial traction. There, there was a wonderful quote that somebody sent in to me, and I apologize for not remembering your name, dear reader, but they sent it into my mailing list and they said something along the lines of being a generalist really means that you're in competition with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think if we just assume like we have a firm whose positioning is e-commerce, well, you're in competition with every Shopify, Magento, big commerce, WooCommerce developer or designer mm-hmm. or marketer out there. And it's going to be so much harder for your messaging to cut through the noise that everybody else is making. Where if you say, I work with Shopify, small businesses, under 10 employees selling women's fashion products, Yes, it's a smaller number of those stores out there, but if they have to choose between generic e-commerce firm and you who say, I specialize in businesses like yours, it's just such a powerful marketing message. Right. And, and that, that gets into that other category of benefits that specializing or positioning delivers, which is the match in the marketing message and how specific and how you can stop compromising in your language right mm-hmm. and you can finally say instead of using generic uh you know like words that represent a category of things you can talk about one thing right instead of using a bunch of pronouns you can start being more specific and use specific nouns and in general like all other things being equal that makes everything better <laughs> when you can be specific that way Somebody gets that feeling of like, oh, they're, are they, you know, you're looking over your shoulder. Are they uh, reading my mind? Mm-hmm. They have a camera in the office here. That's usually a good thing. What do you recommend to somebody who hears this advice, has more of a broad strokes positioning statement, let's say, wants to make that move, but they encounter the positioning fear. They are afraid that there won't be enough clients there, or let's pick on Shopify. There's half a million Shopify stores, if not more by now oh, there's hundreds of Shopify consulting agencies. How would I stand out? How, do you, how would you recommend somebody address that fear, whatever platform it may be or whatever position they're niching down to and overcome that as an internal obstacle? You know, I think, I mean, there's, there's a sort of market research-based approach of, first of all, let's get rid of any assumptions. Mm-hmm. Okay, when, when, you, when anyone is in a state of fear, um, and I can speak, you know, firsthand, your uh, heuristics, your sort of like mental shortcuts to say, how many uh, you know, lions are charging at me and trying to eat me right now? <laughs> Maybe your mental heuristics there are accurate, but in a situation where you're afraid and you're making decisions about your business, assumptions, I believe, will kill you. So let's get rid- first of all, let's get all the assumptions off the table. Sometimes market research can yield evidence that is uh, more accurate than your assumptions. Not always, okay? Like, you know, see see my previous example of Encore Entrepreneurs. I don't know what to tell um, anybody who's going after a a market that's kind of squishy and cloudy and not Mm well-defined that looks like that other than just talk to enough people that you're convinced. Mm -hmm. And, And that's one thing. That's another, you know, piece of advice that I think is pretty good. 
these assumptions exist in your head. So one form of market research would be actual you know, gathering of data and trying to figure out how many companies fit the description, how many competitors actually are there. Another form would just be to force yourself to talk to like 20 um, companies that would be potential clients. So in this mm-hmm. case, they're companies that are like you know, running on Shopify or whatever. And, and if you can see a pattern in what they need, then it's very likely few other people almost likely no other people have done that level of research. Mm-hmm. So you can be a better choice, even in a crowded space. But um, that doesn't always erase the fear, mm-hmm. you know. But it, that's, that's my first recommendation is fewer assumptions, more evidence. Um, my second assumption is, or recommendation is, if you can do a small experiment to see if you can get a response, that can al- also... Uh, start to kind of erase the fear. So um, it's a kind of different example, but I've got another guy in my mentoring program. He's looking into um, deep sea shipping. That's a vertical. There's about 500 companies in that vertical. And at first it was like, really, it just seemed like there was a, you know, a 20 foot high wall that he would have to scale to, to get any kind of, traction in this vertical Mm -hmm. but he showed up and started participating on twitter with you know like seeking out people who are in the vertical and found it surprisingly easy to start conversations wow uh with people about applying technology he's a software developer to this what seems like just a really old school boring completely mature no room for innovation market Mm-hmm. That's not true, though. There is room, mm-hmm. there is room for innovation. These companies are like a lot of them are scared to death about how blockchain technology is going to potentially be a disruptive force in their world. Oh my! Which seems you know like how does that apply? Trust me, it it does. And so that is him taking action that looks a lot like a small experiment. Can I get people to talk to me? Sounds like a simple dumb experiment, but. That's far better. That's far more meaningful, I believe, than anything you could do that's like armchair theorizing. Mm-hmm. So maybe your experiment looks like, can I email 100 companies and get a percentage of them to talk to me? Can I put some kind of white paper in front of them and see how many will respond? Like those types of small experiments can be valuable in addressing the fear. But uh, oh, what, what have I missed? <laughs> As you were saying that, I just remembered uh, at an old day job, we were evaluating expanding into a new market vertical. We had a piece of software that was very, it was a piece of software that was very much applicable to any type of business, but we chose specific verticals to focus on and increment through. And we said, well, let's see if the massage therapy market would respond to this software. Mm -hmm. So selling a software, not a service, but I think the lesson still stands to test whether we'd get a good response. We identified the top three journals we identified two conferences, we sent people to the conferences, we ran ads in the journals, and we saw what is the response rate to our ads? Do people contact us? Do they visit the landing page? Do we have engagement at the uh, trade shows? It ended up being bupkis. It was not, it, it was a good bet to make, but <laughs> yeah. it did not pay off. Right. But in a sense, that was a good marketing lesson learned. We tested, we learned, this was not a good fit, but the playbook really, really worked to help us understand if it would be a good fit, so we came away with that as an asset. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the first one that you test may not work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's it's a question of like how much do you want to invest before you call it a day, right? And I think that that type of approach is better than well, let's invest you know twenty million dollars in this new market before we decide one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a more lean approach that you're describing, and I think that can help people with the fear. I guess the last thing I'll say on that is it's going to be there no matter what. The fear is going to come up. It's going to persist. It, it There are some, you know, sort of antidotes to it, but none of them are completely effective because the fear is a signal you're, you're trying something that's risky. And the, the fact that it's risky is a signal that it may be profitable. Because mm-hmm. if it's not risky, it's probably not that very profitable. Right. Yeah. There are no true safe bets that will actually pay off for you. I don't think so. I think there's useful frameworks for thinking about this stuff. There's, uh, you can try things that have worked for other people. You can try, you know, best practices, but without the risk, there's, I mean, where the risk is low, people flood in and that just lowers the return on time or capital or whatever you want to think about it. Completely agree. No, and I think to my consulting engagements where I describe marketing work as a series of educated bets, we're going to Mm -hmm. apply best practices, we're going to take a hypothesis and see what happens, but there's no guarantee. We could throw $100,000 of Facebook ads against the wall and see what happens, and we might end up down Mm $100,000. It's it's a series of bets and best practices. Yeah, it really, I think it really is too. I think that answers it for me. I mean, it gives me a framework to share with people and hopefully for all the listeners on e-commerce as a niche or sort of these horizontal verticals as a niche and the best ways to approach it to get past the fear. I know I definitely have my question answered. Thank you so much. That's awesome. So is that what you're going to pivot to is e-commerce now? (laughs) No, always be pivoting. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's great, Kai. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, Let's see. I think I'm going to Trying to think of them, I'll probably merge this with the the interrupted, the episodus interruptus episode, and uh, we'll just have one. So I think I've already got info. But in case folks have forgotten already, Kai, where can people find you online and learn people, more about you? If people would like to learn more about me, the best way is to go to kaidavis.com. That's K A I D A V is in Victor, I S is in Sam.com. Sign up for my daily email newsletter on freelancing and consulting and how to get more clients without spending more on marketing. If you sign up today, I guarantee you'll get tomorrow's issue in your inbox. Will people get pictures of Burning Man? Ooh, that is a good question. I will be uh, attempting to. We'll see if I follow through on this, but I'll be attempting to. I I got a little stand for my bike where uh, my iPhone mounts in, so I'll be attempting to take some video uh, bike throughs as the burn gets set up and photos and post them on Twitter and mail them out to my list. And there definitely will be a uh, Burning Man photo edition uh, emailed to my newsletter with all the beautiful photos I take at the burn. Yeah, if that's not reason enough to sign up, I don't know what is. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kai. Thank you, Philip. We're out. Sweet. Thank you so much.